This is Entheogen, talk about tools for generating the divine within. Find the notes and links for this and other episodes at entheogenshow.com. Sign up to receive an email when we release a new episode. Follow us at Entheogen Show on Twitter and like Entheogen Show on Facebook. Today is December 14th, 2015, and we are discussing the Zendo Project with special guest Sarah Gale, Harm Reduction Coordinator for MAPS. Sarah has been involved with the Zendo Project since its inception in 2012. Since then, she has helped coordinate harm reduction services at festivals all over the world, including Burning Man, Africa Burn, Envision Festival, and Lightning in a Bottle. She is also an intern investigator in the Boulder, Colorado Phase II clinical trial of the safety and efficacy of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Sarah works as a psychotherapist in private practice and received her master's in transpersonal counseling psychology at Naropa University. Sarah, welcome to Entheogen. Thank you for having me. So uh, I guess the reason uh, we invited you on was you're the harm reduction coordinator for MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, as our listeners well know. Um, and specifically, you lead up what's called the Zendo Project. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the Zendo Project is? Yeah, so the Zendo Project is a peer-to-peer support group, a community harm reduction project where we go to festivals all over the world and we create safe spaces for people who are having difficult psychedelic experiences. Uh, we also provide education to the public at festivals and in the community around the actual risks and benefits of psychedelics. We've been around since 2012 in our current inception. So MAPS has been doing psychedelic harm reduction work um, when, since they started in 1986, really. Um, there's been uh, involvement in psychedelic harm reduction. Specifically, um, in 2002, MAPS started working with Boom Festival in Portugal and um, started helping them head up their psychedelic harm reduction efforts there. And uh, then helped at Burning Man from 2002 through 2012. And then the current iteration of the actual Zendo project uh, with the name Zendo started in 2012. And uh, so since 2012, we have trained um, many volunteers, about over 500 volunteers. And we've helped many guests um, at these events, and we do festivals as well as smaller events. So Burning Man, Lightning in a Bottle, Africa Burn, Envision Festival. Yeah, we're really offering compassionate care and peer-to-peer support. So we train our volunteers to provide a non-judgmental, um, supportive environment for people who might be struggling uh, with, you know, uh, with the use of psychedelics. So that could be anywhere from just a little bit of struggle, uh, having a little bit of a difficult time, to full-on really extreme state experiences where people might be uh, aggressive or violent, things like that. So we really see people from, you know, full spectrum. We really see people uh, in a lot of different um, headspaces in in the Zendo. And you mentioned some of the more difficult experiences that people can find themselves in, in some of these, you know, really, um, cacophonous, uh, you know, festival environments, um, you know, sometimes somewhat questionable settings. And, uh, I thought a really interesting secondary effect was just the fact that, uh, you can oftentimes prevent, you know, otherwise what would turn into a hospitalization or arrest, which also then improves the public perception, which I think is a really important thing. Absolutely. Yeah. We've really seen that uh, our work at, at events has really decreased the, 
the uh, incidence of unnecessary hospitalizations and arrests. There's been many times where we've intervened in a situation which could have easily escalated uh, to law enforcement or to hospitalization, and we were able to support the person in uh, grounding them and bringing them back to a state where they were no longer, uh, you know, seen as a threat or um, potentially, you know, harming themselves or others. And that absolutely goes a long way. In addition to that kind of improving public perception, you know, I think anybody who's been to a fest like this or has had an experience with psychedelics can, can jump to and kind of attach to an idea of why something like this just feels good to know that it's there. Um, but why else, from your perspective, is a program like Zendo or the Zendo necessary? Yeah, so, you know, psychedelics have been used for, for thousands of years in many cultures all around the world um, for healing and transformation. And in our culture in the West, often, you know, we've lost that connection to intentional use. We've lost connection to ceremony or intention around psychedelics. And so uh, psychedelics are used in recreational environments, recreational settings. And what we see in transformational festivals, uh, such as Burning Man, is that um, there is an increased awareness and increased consciousness around uh, substance use um, where people are, you know, we see a resurgence of, um, you know, uh, not necessarily a Burning Man, but ayahuasca use, um, peyote, uh, traditional plant medicines. And so we see that people, a lot of people in this generation are really turning toward, you know, looking at using substances in a more responsible, conscious way. And so uh, we really believe that, um, you know, it's, it's really in the recreational psychedelic use environment, there's a lot of things that can, um, there's a lot of variables that can contribute to somebody's experience. So, you know, psychedelics are an overwhelming experience often just alone or in the presence of good friends. And then if you add all of these variables of the festival environment, all of the noise, all of the people that you don't know, uh, the music, it just can become really, really overwhelming for people. So we really believe that um, we can avoid trauma from, from psychedelic use. We can avoid people having these experiences where, you know, five years down the road, 10 years down the road, they're still holding this kind of negative experience around their psychedelic use where it becomes something that actually they become afraid of. And uh, that just can contribute to the stigma of psychedelics in general. Um, you know, a lot of people that we encounter sometimes at festivals are like, yeah, I used psychedelics when I was really young and, and oh my gosh, I had such a horrible, terrible time and I would never, ever do right. that again. And right. so we really feel that, you know, um, people are going to use drugs. That's just human nature. People are going to use substances to expand their awareness and their consciousness. And there are people are going to use substances for a variety of reasons, um, so we really feel that it's our duty, just like, um, you know, with first aid, having a medical professional there, having medical staff there who are, are supporting people in, in physical um, situations. We really believe that it is 
the responsible thing for us to do as a community, as humans, as a festival culture, to provide um, psychedelic uh, harm reduction, to provide psychological first aid. So in the space, we don't just work with people who are having psychedelic experiences. We also work with people who are just having difficult emotional experiences. And so we're really trying to promote a culture where um, we are taking care of each other and we are um, really allowing difficult experiences to be there and holding space for those experiences rather than trying to push them away. And what we find is that um, when we provide that kind of environment for people, people just feel safer, uh, whether they're engaging in psychedelic use or not, they just feel safer, they just feel um, you know, more uh, supported by the community. And uh, we just really feel that that's important, not just in festivals, but in the world at large. I mean, you can see what happens on a community level uh, in society when someone has a freak out, whether it's uh, related to psychedelics or some other mental state, psychosis, schizophrenia, something like that. The way that we approach and deal with those situations as a society is pretty draconian. The methods that we use to approach people who um, are having a difficult time uh, especially if it's something that, you know, they're acting very unusual or in ways that are very out of the ordinary, you know, it, the, the move to sedate and um, to restrain someone right away is, is pretty prevalent in our society <laughs> when it comes to, you know, not knowing what to do with people when they're acting uh, different. <laughs> what an alternative you guys provide, um, you know, you mentioned uh, talking through like a difficult experience rather than trying to avoid it or, or, you know, help somebody, uh, like forget about it or, or, or I guess as you put it in, in some of the, uh, basic tips you have talking through, not down, right. It's, yes. it's a great alternative to be able to, you know, not, uh, sort of help somebody avoid something or, or run away from an idea, but to be able to explore that, you know, that difficult experience they're having. Why is it difficult? What are they experiencing? Kevin had an experience, uh, couple of yeah. years, last year at Burning um, Man, right? Well, last year at Burning Man, and then also I think one of the first uh, Entheogen shows we ever did was about bad trips. And uh, so Sarah, in in kind of doing some background research, the show, it actually it struck, really struck a chord with me, uh, the way that sentence is phrased about um, turning these situations into situations for potential growth. Because I think I came from the other side of the spectrum where I overly romanticized um, the, the psychedelic experiences and they'd always been very positive for me. And I just assumed that, well, if you went in with a positive attitude, well, there's no reason you were ever going to have a, a difficult experience. And uh, it took me years to have, to have one. And when I did, it was such a shock to, to my system. And uh, luckily, I, I had some support. I, did, I definitely didn't have Zendo-style support. I would have loved that. But... Um, but really um, reflecting on that experience afterwards when I was able to revisit it uh, through another later psychedelic experience, um, that's, that's what it was. It was an unbelievable opportunity for, for healing and growth. But as you said, it's very hard to find a situation where someone will let you have that, that, that opportunity. Because as you said, we, we tend to live in a, uh, a draconian society that, that treats these things with, uh, with an iron fist instead of uh, an open hand, right? Yeah, and, one, uh, one floor of the cuckoo's nest comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a history of, of, you know, instead of providing treatment, sort of pr 
containing people in a way that can be really sad. Um, I, I like the way that you, you talked about how you know our generation is sort of coming around to a way of being able to approach these experiences with with intention. And that's something we've talked about before. And one of the reasons why I believe ayahuasca has kind of a positive uh, conception. You know, people hear about that and it's associated with healing. And most of the time what you, what you hear, even though the experience itself may be difficult, that ultimately it's, it's a positive thing. And that, you know, the recreational history of things like LSD or mushrooms with, you, you know, that exists more predominantly, I think, in the Western world, North America, um, it's, I, I like the idea of, okay, accepting that it's going to happen, go to these festivals where it tends to happen a lot and provide care. And, and for me, it's not just that there's a societal, you know, a symbolic gesture of we're here to help each other, but even though I haven't been to the facilities at Burning Man, it makes me feel better knowing that they're there for either myself or someone who I care about, who I'm with, or someone I meet who I don't even know. You know, if 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 you come across them and you want to help, and you're you're not sure, like I can imagine myself there next year, coming across someone who I might have that instinct of, oh no, they're messed up. I have to get away from them. But instead, just knowing that something like the Zendo projects at Burning Burning Man, I have a reason to uh, interact in a positive way and say, hey, let's get you help if you're open to it. And you know, I, I happen to know that there are resources that we can go to. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, we really feel that uh, what we've noticed at events is that um, what we've heard from people, um, from participants, uh, and from guests in the Zendo is that just our presence there creates a, a sense of safety that actually in some ways can prevent people from having, from even having um, a difficult experience because yeah, there's exactly. this awareness of like, oh, there's there's some there's safety here. And so when we're in that space of safety, you know, what we find with difficult experiences is that it's usually um, a result in, in some way. So difficulty is just par for the course with psychedelics, right? When you engage in it and with maps, with our psychedelic, um, with the psychedelic therapy work that maps does, it's not just, you know, it's assumed that difficulty is going to arise and it's welcomed because those, ex those um, studies are going on with people who are using psychedelics in a healing environment with therapists. And so it's expected that difficult material, difficult psychological and emotional material is going to arise and the um the the environment is set up to welcome that and work with it um but with recreational with recreational use often it's kind of like people are often just having they just want to have a good time they just want to have fun and all of a sudden this stuff is coming up for them and they feel like it's not the environment for them to be able to kind of go there and sometimes that's compounded by you know their friends who aren't really wanting to spend the next 5 hours processing some deep emotional thing with their friend not everyone wants to do that at on every night you know so <laughs> sometimes we just get people who come to the zendo who are like you know i have we have this friend and we want to be there for him but we also want to go out and have have this time and and they know you know that we're there um we have volunteers who have committed to sign up for an eight-hour shift to be there and their entire 
their desire is to be there and to listen and hold space for someone while they're talking about their experience. They don't have this hidden agenda of, oh, I've, I've, got, I've really got to go and I really don't want to be here and I really don't want to listen to this person's process. It's like those people are, our volunteers are there intentionally for that purpose. And so, you know, and, and it isn't to um, uh, condone or condemn, you know, recreational use is, is great. And there's a lot of really intentional recreational um, use that happens. But oftentimes, you know, if, if you just want to go out and dance, it's like you, maybe you just don't want to watch your friend, you know, for their entire trip. And and so, um, yeah, it's kind of that idea, um, back to what you're saying about like difficult is not the, you know, one of our principles is that difficult is not the same as bad. Um, and in a culture where there's awareness that psychedelics bring up uh, material, bring up emotional things to look at, um, it's just kind of expected. Um, and so we're learning that kind of in, you know, the, the festival culture, we can create an awareness there. We can educate people around this reality that, yeah, psychedelics are catalysts for, for healing. And, you know, in the 60s, in the, um, in the psychedelic revolution there, it was uh, you know, psychedelics, even synthetic LSD, um, and then MDMA in the eighties were used for therapeutic purposes. You know, they were in all of these, there were all of these therapists doing all of these studies. And then obviously it, you know, it (laughs) word got out and, um, and, and then, um, you know, as things started to be used recreationally, then the, the fear came up and then the, the illegalization and then the stigma arose. Um, but it's, you know, it's kind of this like lacuna, this black hole, where um, when people talk about psychedelics these days in mainstream conversation about psychedelics, and obviously this is shifting, but it's kind of like this, this hole, this like black hole of time, even in the field of um, psychology and psychotherapy, where it's like uh, psychedelics contributed so much to psych- psychology, to neuroscience. Um, it contributed so much to our culture, to art, to music. And yet it's kind of this like shameful thing where people don't want to kind of talk about their experiences or they don't have experiences because there's so much stigma around it. There's so much um, fear around it. And right. so, um, yeah, that fear and stigma is contributing to that environment of fear, which can make it even harder for someone to kind of surrender and let go uh, into whatever their experience is. So we kind of help to create a, a sense of safety uh, where that fear can be um, alleviated a bit. How long does that sort of, uh, you know, bubble last that you that you provide that, that uh, you know, um, that safe space? Uh, I guess I'm asking how long is a typical experience in the Zendo uh, at you know, at a festival like Burning Man, say, first. Are you wondering, Joe, if you can just check in at the beginning of the week and check out at the end of the week? Right. <laughs> Are you taking reservations now for 2016? <laughs> you know, but honestly, typically, like if somebody, you know, some, somebody's friend uh, realizes that their, their friend is having a, a difficult experience and brings them to Zendo and, uh, you know, sort of drops them off in your, in your uh, care, how long do they typically kind of stay there? I guess it depends on the substance. Yeah, it really depends on the substance and the the experience. Um, so, you know, anywhere from an hour uh, to you know their entire journey in eight hours, sometimes you know twelve hours. Uh, people often find once they're in the space, it feels so safe and it feels um, 
so good in there that they don't really want to leave sometimes. <laughs> um, and it's just like, well, why, why would I go out, <laughs> go back out there? What we find often at festivals is one of the things that we're doing as a, as a culture um, at these transformational festivals is we're wanting to connect with people. We're wanting to have intimate connection. And so what people often find in the Zendo you know, is that intimate connection. And it's funny because sometimes people get there by one of the most common experiences is people are feeling isolated. People are feeling alone and the, um, whatever they have ingested has kind of, uh, brought that up for them, has made that more evident. Um, and I think they've, they've tapped into some, uh, some existential aloneness. And so oftentimes when people get to the space, it's like they're in that space of just kind of feeling alone. And so their, their experience in the Zendo is one of connection is one of deep listening and, um, you know, interpersonal interaction that, uh, once they're in there, it's kind of like, wow, this is amazing, you know? And then they go back out and, um, you know, and are able to bring that into the rest of the festival. So yeah, it really varies, you know, the, the, the time can be anywhere from an hour to, you know, upwards of 12. And, um, yeah, it really does depend on how much, you know, care they're needing and, uh, when they took the substance. Um, so yeah, there's, it's very variable. I'd uh, say an average of, you know, a couple hours. Interesting. And and I noticed you said earlier, you, you guys invite uh, people to come in, even if they're not necessarily having an acute experience, uh, you know, sort of tripping and having a difficult uh, time. But uh, also people that have had a prior experience that might have been difficult that they're having trouble integrating can also stop by and, and get some of that same kind of, you know, comfort and uh, just a listening ear. Yeah, definitely. People come in who are looking to integrate experiences that they had, you know, the day before um, and 20 years before. We've had people come in who, who say, you know, I have this thing that I want to process that happened to me, you know, a long time ago. And so it's pretty amazing the the spectrum of people that we get in the space. And, and when we see people in the space who are wanting to integrate, a lot of it is really just sharing the story. You know, in, in a lot of uh, traditional indigenous cultures where entheogens, psychedelics are used for healing, so much of the visions that one experiences, they are then shared with the community. You know, one of the first things that the shaman will ask is, what did you see? What are you bringing back? What are you bringing for your community? The vision is not just about me and my life and my ego <laughs> and just my isolated self. It's about you know, your vision is, is a gift to the entire community. And so what we've found is that just having a space for people to even just talk about their experiences and receive reflection and support in that non-judgmental atmosphere is enough to help them to move through whatever they need to move through, whether it's, you know, with, with integration, it can be any number of things, people feeling the contrast between their expansive altering experience and then coming back to just business as usual and kind of the pain of that contrast of like, well, I was in this really amazing connected space and now I'm not. <laughs> so a lot of times it's helping people integrate that, integrate the story so that they can have a narrative of their experience, which they can then tie into their life. Like, how does this relate to your life? How does this relate to your gifts and your purpose and what you're bringing back from this journey and back to your community and your people. And that's something that in a, in a society where there's not, not only is there not acceptance, but there's outright condemnation of substance use of psychedelic use. It's really not, it's something that's really rare. 
So we found that that can really be a, a beautiful process to help people just share their stories. Yeah, that for me is one of the things I absolutely loved in in reading your your literature on the website and also uh, the, the great video that's uh, on the MAPS uh, website. I'm not sure if it's on your site as well, the 2014 volunteer training video, which uh, which is on YouTube. And uh, and you just you stress integration as Brad mentioned before. I think ayahuasca stands alone right now in in that it's um, generally perceived as as medicinal as some sort of uh, healing spiritual experience, but that a lot of people don't allow other psychedelics to 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 be that at least uh, you know in in concept. And uh, the you know the the great thing about ayahuasca is there's such a a structure to all of it and all of these things come with the ayahuasca culture, the, the, you know, marking intentions, some sort of integration afterwards, but these things are not, uh, I don't know, in mainstream, normal American psychedelic culture, they don't, they don't exist. Yeah. Um, and I think the more they exist, the better. And I think in your video, you do a fantastic job of, of saying, you know, your, your intentions, which is something in, in ayahuasca, which you do before, you can even state your intentions after you've, you've started tripping. It's never, it's never too late to do that. And, um, and then when you mentioned integration, you, you gave a list of questions and, you know, things people could do to help better integrate the experience. But as you said, talking about the experience with a group of people, and I think just being another person there and listening to that, uh, what it can do for your own experience is just listening to someone else's and having a shared, uh, you know, just, just some kind of a, a shared story together. It reminded me a lot of, um, the kind of one of the things I've learned about, if you really want to know something, then try to teach someone else about it, you know, and, and what you learn in trying to teach someone something, all of the difficulties you have in trying to help someone understand something teaches you so much. And, uh, it just made me, uh, it just made me think so much about how valuable that could be, uh, in this setting. Mm, definitely. I had a question speaking personally. I, I'd be very interested in volunteering, um, Potentially next year for Burning Man or or another festival is the is the training program the same to take volunteers get like irrespective of the festival? Can you tell us a little bit more about you know someone who wants to volunteer how they can approach it? Absolutely, yeah. So every festival we do, uh, we have a training that's on site, and we usually it's the first day of the event, and it's a couple hour training. And the process is that there's an application process uh, for applying to the, fe- to the individual festival. So right now, the way that that looks is uh, if you go on our website on zenderproject.org, you sign up for our email newsletter. And then you get that newsletter, and when there's a festival, it will be announced in the newsletter, and then there'll be an application link where you can apply. And so once you apply and are accepted to a festival, then that uh, training happens on site, and that training is open to the public. So um, whether you're volunteering with the Zendo or just want to come and be part of the training, it's a great opportunity to connect uh, with the Zendo crew and uh, ask questions and be part of the community. Did I hear you right that even if you're not a registered volunteer, you still open the doors for the training so that people can come by just to kind of check out what it's like and learn some things for themselves or get some perspective on what the volunteers are being prepared with? Yes, exactly. Cool. 
That's yeah, it's awesome. not a pri- it's not a private training, so it is open to the public. Um, yeah. But if you do want to volunteer, you have to do that uh, prior to the event. Gotcha. You, you also have to uh, shave your beard, Brad. That uh, that beard <laughs> freaks people out. You know? it's, oh uh, no! Not Zendo, not Zendo quality beard. <laughs> we welcome beards. Uh, just you know, no and shirts that say like scary things or with lots of scary <laughs> pictures or <laughs> no, no Donald Trump t-shirts and, and another point of clarification besides knowing that I can go with a beard which is important um, it's festival specific so to volunteer for a specific festival there's an application process you know if I were to be going to lightning in a bottle or burning man that's it's it'd be a separate um, application for each Yes, uh, cool. we will be in 2016. We'll be revamping our uh, system. So what it'll look like is that you'll actually be able to fill out a profile, and then we'll have your profile in the system. And then when you want to apply to a, a specific event, rather than filling out the whole application all over again, you just have to let us know that you're interested in applying to that event, and then we'll go look at your profile. But for right now, so you know, stay tuned for that in 2016, and that information for that will go out in the newsletter as well. But for right now, yeah, it's festival by festival basis. Um, you kind of have to redo your application for, for every event. Are there any festivals that tend to have a sort of like lower volunteer turnout that you need to, uh, you know, generate some interest for? You know, Burning Man, because it's such a big event and because we have two sites. So this past year was the first year that we actually had two Zendos. Uh, we had one in our, we actually had two Zendos and two new structures. So um, they were across the, the playa from each other. And so we needed a lot of volunteers for Burning Man and we'll continue to need a lot because of how many shifts there are and um, how many hours were, were there at the event. Um, so that is definitely one where we're always kind of looking, uh, it, you know, because we go to Africa burn, um, oftentimes our volunteers uh, for Africa burn are local in Africa. And so there's, there's not usually a lot of people from the U S who want to kind of come with us there, but we're always, you know, looking for people who are interested in going out to, to Africa, um, to volunteer there as well. Um, and then, yeah, uh, the other events, we definitely get um, a good volunteer turnout, but we're always welcoming more people to apply. Excellent. And uh, you, I noticed you also um, uh, have had, a, you've, I guess you've had a Zendo project at the Cannabis Cup. What's that like? What, are, what kind of experiences are, are uh, people having on, uh, you know, I guess too much cannabis? Yeah, yeah. So we did do Cannabis Cup uh, this past year, the first one post legalization, and both there and at other events where people are are smoking cannabis, it's really interesting to see um, the variety of of reactions. You know, cannabis is a very powerful medicine, and I think uh, it has kind of a reputation for just being, you know, just a a very recreational substance, you know, it's like people don't smoke it maybe the way they would smoke like DMT, <laughs> like a lot more thoughtfulness. And um, so with cannabis, it's like a lot of people are really surprised. Like they come into the Zendo and they say, well, I must've been, it must've been laced with something or I must've had, you know, I must've eaten an edible that had something in it. And, and usually it's just like, no, actually it's just the cannabis <laughs> because especially with edibles, what we find is that people can just get really disoriented and it can feel very psychedelic and cannabis can have uh, a very, 
intense effect on people. So yeah, it often just looks like a lot of disorientation, kind of confusion, um, racing thoughts and racing heart. Um, what do you do for people who are in, you know, in that state? Do you just say, you know, take two slices of pizza and call me in the morning or stick them in front of a TV? Like what, uh, <laughs> how do you, how do you help uh, those, those people? Yeah, no, we would work with them in the same way that we would work with someone who was on a psychedelic. So um, really helping to just help them feel safe. Uh, we actually can, you know, sit with them and talk them through the, with the experience. Um, they can share their what's going on for them and we can support them in listening. So often it, it is actually presents very similar to how somebody would be on, you know, LSD or mushrooms where uh, they can still share and talk about their experience and we can still provide the, the support and their reflection and uh, yeah, just helping them through the process. So yeah, I'd say it's very similar to other psychedelics. Do you think it tends to be more, um, you know, of the, of this sort of drug set and setting uh, modality? Do you think it's it's more, you know, drug in that case? Like people are just not expecting it, you know, cannabis to be so strong, you know, less so about the setting or or their mindset. Uh, I no, I, I would actually say that it would be yeah, all of those contributing. So definitely, um, you know, when you when you smoke cannabis, it definitely brings things to the surface. Um, and, you know, I think that that's one of the common experiences that people have with, with pot is this uh, paranoia, right? And often paranoia is a result of feeling anxious about something. And often it's an internal state that then sometimes gets manifest as like fear of something externally. But what we find is that like uh, with cannabis, there can be a high degree of anxiety. And usually what that's pointing to is that there's something that's coming up for the person that they're not really wanting to look at. And so whenever we, even if we're not on a substance, whenever we are resisting looking at something in our lives, whether it's internal, emotional, or whether it's something that's going on for us externally, whenever we resist uh, being with that thing and looking at it, it causes anxiety to come up. So with cannabis, we actually find that it can, it can bring up a lot for people. And then that can contribute to a sense of anxiety, a sense of paranoia. And, um, and then it also adds to it what you just spoke about, you know, feeling like a little surprised that they're having such a maybe ext so-called extreme reaction to that particular substance. It's kind of like adds to the paranoia a little bit because it's like, well, I can't, there's no way that it could be this intense. And so that definitely contributes. Um, but I'd say that, yeah, the same elements that go into, into other psychedelics go into that, you know, and depending on, um, on kind of the research or the, the literature that's out there about uh, cannabis, you know, it's been used for a long time as well in various cultures for its, its healing benefits, not just physical, but, but mental as well. And I think that with legalization in uh, some places and with this, uh, this movement in the past, you know, few years with cannabis, I think that there's been a lot of focus on the, the physical medical benefits of cannabis, but I think that there are a lot of emotional and psychological benefits as well. Um, and it gets people to really, you know, it alters your perspective and you get to look at things in a different way, which is sometimes not so pleasant. Sure. Yeah. We, we, uh, we interviewed, um, Carl Rock, uh, who is known as, uh, one of the sort of inventors of the term entheogen a number of shows ago. And I was, uh, interested to hear his answer to the question about sort of like what, um, what entheogen he would, you know, recommend, uh, not in so many words, but, 
Um, and he, he said cannabis, uh, you know, it, it's gotten very strong uh, in the last, I don't know, probably a couple of decades. And it can have a very entheogenic experience uh, or effect. And I guess a lot of people don't think of it that way because of what you described. They think of it as just like a recreational substance, you know, smoke it and have a good time. Um, but I think you're right that it can definitely bring things up for people. And uh, as you said, uh, you know, when those things come up and when they're feeling kind of strange, they may not attribute it to cannabis. They, they think, well, something's really wrong. You know, if, if I'm feeling this way, it's not the cannabis. They rule that out immediately. Um, so I think, you know, people should probably keep that in mind that, uh, that's a pretty powerful entheogen. Yeah. And I think that education is really the important piece there. Um, as with other substances too, especially around edibles, because it's so hard sometimes to know your dose with that. And so, you know, the, the harm reduction aspect of really knowing your dose, knowing what you're taking, um, is really important with cannabis. And I think that there, yeah, what we've noticed in Colorado is that, you know, with legalization, it's, it's definitely more and more people are having experiences. And, um, I think that the education piece is so important for people to recognize, like, this isn't just something to just play with that is actually also a very powerful substance. So I think that the awareness will, will go a long way in, in helping people navigate that. Is that a hard line to walk? Um, you know, referring to it as, uh, like harm reduction, you know, I, I, I've noticed you've used that word, that, that phrase a few times and that's, you know, sort of where this, this whole thing, this whole discussion falls under, um, you know, t- positioning it as harm reduction, does that have any sort of negative negative connotations, um, you know, in public perception? Uh, you know, it, it just framing it in such a way that uh, these things may cause harm, such that we need organizations to, you know, lower that risk, that inevitable risk of harm. How do you walk that line? Yeah, yeah, I think it's definitely a bigger conversation um, that we've explored in in the community and. Um, I think that it goes both ways. It's um, there's a benefit to using that term in the sense of we you know we're still operating in a prohibitionist model where our services and our being we're providing our services at these events where we're working alongside medical and we're really trying to, you know, using the terms, uh, using a term such as like benefit optimization, um, (laughs) we probably wouldn't get a whole lot of support in in terms (laughs) of allowing us to be on site. So uh, harm reduction has, um, what we've seen with like the rave act and things is that even providing so-called harm reduction at events has been a struggle because if you provide a service that says that it offers support for people who are who are having experiences on psychedelics immediately uh, there's this this idea or this stigma that you're promoting drug use and so we have to walk this line of really you know we don't pro- we don't promote and we don't condone. So we are trying to provide education around the actual risks and benefits. And so you know a term that might be more fitting would be risk reduction, um, because yeah, harm is such a, is definitely such a powerful term. <laughs> um, but what we found is that it is something that is more accessible often to law enforcement or to medical or security. Uh, that idea um, that you know we're we're really helping to mitigate uh, risk to help mitigate harm is something that I think is a little bit more palatable for uh, for for those kind of organizations sometimes, 
Um, and then, yeah, within the community, depending on who we're speaking with, we, we use different terms. So we use uh, psychological support or psychedelic support, harm reduction, risk reduction. Uh, so, yeah, it's definitely um, there's pros and cons to the term. Yeah, and Sarah, it just makes me curious. I mean, is there a point, uh, like, how do the medical services uh, typically interact with you at a festival? I mean, is there, are, you know, do you have a, a very good open relationship with them? Do they determine certain protocols by where you, you immediately have to, to contact them? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, so depending on the event, um, we work. Re- we always work really closely with medical. So we always have a way to contact them via radio or we're right next to them. And so it's usually a very good relationship. And then we have certain events where we really have been working with certain medical organizations for some time now over the past few years and so developed a closer relationship there. And they're often so appreciative that they're there because, you know, the people who are doing medical, often they are you know they don't they're not really necessarily trained to work with those experiences there's a lot of people in the in the medical field who are really good at uh, working with with individuals um, in challenging experiences but oftentimes you know they're there they want to help people with the physical aspects of it and they're really happy to have somebody there who's helping take those psychological and emotional cases Um, and so we really uh, we get a lot of feedback from medical that you know it's such a relief that you guys are here Uh, it's so helpful to have you here Um, you know because somebody who would normally be taking up you know hours of time in medical is there in the zendo where they're welcome and they're you know that's what we're doing uh same thing with security often people uh you know we've had really good interactions with law enforcement um law enforcement security will often work you know sometimes even bring people to us work with us and you know they're really appreciative to have us there because Oftentimes, from a law enforcement perspective, especially if somebody isn't in possession of, of a substance, they don't really want to be dealing with this freaking out, tripping person. They would, they would rather have the community kind of take care of that person and be able to calm them down. Um, yeah. And so that's what we've seen. We've really seen that law enforcement and medical have just been really supportive of our presence and we always uh, bring someone in from medical to, to look at people to uh, to make sure that there isn't an underlying physical medical condition because, you know, with everything that's out there, people don't know what they took. Somebody can come in and say, you know, I took LSD or I took MDMA, but because, uh, because drugs are illegal, there isn't so much testing and there's so much adulterated stuff that is going around. So we really pay attention to the physical aspects of it too. Cause even if someone says that they took a certain substance, we're aware that they, that they may have things on board that they're not even aware that they have on board. So uh, we bring a medical person into the space to just check out every guest that we have in the space to make sure that we're ruling out any possibility of, of medical issues as well. How different is it, uh, Sarah, um, working at a festival like Boom in Portugal where drugs are decriminalized um, and you, know, you have things like pill testing on site? Um, how, you know, how different is that from working at a festival like Burning Man? Yeah, so because, um, you know, we really, we were at Boom in the early years of Cosmicare there, and what we've seen is that the model that is at Boom now is just so, because it's supported by the community, because it's supported there and that and the drugs have been decriminalized for per- personal use, 
there's just much more um, ability to collaborate, to advertise, to put themselves out there. So they often get a lot more guests because I think because the stigma isn't there, people just feel safe going to seek services. So when you're in an environment where drugs are illegal, you know, a lot of people are really afraid to go and seek help. So there's a lot of people that we are aware of at Burning Man who don't even go to look for services because they're afraid that they're going to get in trouble. And there, um, that isn't there at boom, you know, that fear isn't there. So they get a lot more guests and they're a lot more integrated in the infrastructure of the festival, uh, than we are currently at Burning Man, though we're working on becoming more integrated in, into the event, um, and at other events like Envision and Lightning in a Bottle, we're really integrated into the system of medical and security and rangers. So I think that removing that stigma and putting the information out there, putting the testing out there, really provides an environment where people just feel they just know. It's like everybody at the event knows this, this service is there. It's available if I need it. And I'm free to go there and I'm not going to get in trouble. And so I think what we see is definitely more turnout of people who actually show up. Uh, I think that at Burning Man, yeah, we get a a fraction of what's actually going on out there. Uh, (laughs) That we could probably help even more people than we're helping right now. Um, I wonder. I wonder yeah. how many people at Burning Man are 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 still looking for the Zendo, uh, you know, the Zendo <laughs> camp right now. You know, just wandering the desert. <laughs> what role does uh, does ecstasydata.org play um, in you know? It, I guess in bridging that gap where you don't have on site pill testing, uh, people are you know popping pills and not knowing exactly what's in it. Um, do, do, you know, do you at the Zendo project refer to a site like ecstasydata.org or direct, uh, direct, you know, people to it in any way? Uh, yeah, we let people know about the resources that are out there. So we have some resources that, you know, we've put on our website, uh, including dance safe and Arrowhead, um, and blue light. And so we definitely refer people to those places at certain events we work uh side by side with dance safe so dance safe might be near us and we're there we don't do testing in the space just because that's not what we're set up to do we're providing this one service and um you know hopefully one day we will be able to to do something like that but yeah currently we definitely uh refer to those to those organizations, uh, but don't do any active testing in the space. Well, someday I hope that uh, they won't even be necessary because it'll just be on the label, you know, that you got from the pharmacy and uh, you won't have to worry about it, right? You'll know exactly what's in there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like Joe's, I like Joe's future of things. I too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it'd be fantastic to be at a festival like this for lots of reasons, but especially to have this as a resource. Are there, any like a short list of basic tips you might provide for listeners who aren't, you know, maybe they're at a concert, um, one of the upcoming tool concerts this January, for example, um, and they don't have something like the Zendo project. Is there anything that you could suggest, you know, for if, if you, your friend is going to take something and you're not, or you both are, um, that if someone does come into some difficulty, are there any sort of, you know, pointers that you'd give? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, a huge part of what we're what we're aiming to do with the Zendo is provide education, so that you know it's not just about necessarily uh, the Zendo space itself, but it's about how can we create a culture 
where this is a conversation that people are having so that it's just kind of basic knowledge. It's like kind of like how CPR, it'd be great if everybody just knew CPR, basic first aid, you know. So it'd be great if people just had this in their back pocket where it's just like, oh, yeah, I feel comfortable and I feel proficient in helping somebody go through a challenging experience. And so one thing that we provide on our website is a whole list of resources that a, a lot of those resources talk about, you know, how to help somebody who's having a challenging time. So some things that we really suggest is that definitely know your substance and know your dose. So really be aware of where you're getting your substances from, test mm. uh, what you're receiving, and really know you know how much you should take and really work with you know measuring that out, making sure that you're taking a safe amount. Making sure that you're with people that you know and trust or having a buddy can be really, really helpful. Um, one thing to do if you're with someone and they're starting to have a challenging time is bring them away from any big crowds or uh, loud music or harsh lighting. Often just uh, cutting down on the stimulation, on the external stimulation can really be helpful. So if you're out dancing and someone starts to... Uh, to have a difficult time getting them away from the dance floor, um, finding them a place that's a little bit more quiet if possible, mm -hmm. giving them some water, asking them what they need, or if it's you trying to assess what you need, do basic needs, you know, so um, am I cold? Do I need a blanket? It's amazing how much just right. being warm can help. <laughs> it's like those kind of basic things just sometimes go out the window when you don't have a body or don't have an ego. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> so, well said. <laughs> so warm, something to drink, something to eat. Um, oftentimes, yeah, just holding space for that person essentially means allowing their experience to be okay. And so relegating or sorry, regulating whatever fear might be coming up for you. So if their experience is causing you to go into a fearful place, knowing that that fear will just cause escalate escalation in the situation. So trying to re remain a calm and grounded presence and, and utilizing whatever resources you need to utilize to be able to be that presence. So if you're worried that there might be something medically that's going on with this person, make sure that you uh, bring them to a medical person or bring a medical person to them. If, you're, if you've got something in the back of your mind that's worried, like, oh, maybe there is something physically wrong with this person, then it's going to be really hard to be a calm, grounded presence with them. So, um, you know, I recommend, you know, making yourself as comfortable as possible so that you can be a grounded presence for that person. And uh, listening, oftentimes people just want to be listened to without necessarily even given any advice. So, you know, oftentimes when someone's having a difficult time, even when they're not on a substance, it can be this like, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it, it's going to be all right. And those are kind of our human ways of trying to make somebody feel better sometimes. But oftentimes what's really just needed is just being with the person, listening to whatever's going on for them, and letting them know that whatever's coming up, whether it's emotional, mental, physical, is perfectly okay, and that they're safe, you know, reminding them that they're safe. So those are all things that, that can be really helpful for somebody. Uh, 
knowing, having your own knowledge and resources of experiences. So when you see someone uh, and they're acting strange on LSD, you know, that's pretty normal. <laughs> so um, being aware of the effects of certain substances can help you when you're helping somebody else. So if you're aware, like, oh, yeah, that's a pretty normal experience for somebody on a particular substance, then you're going to feel more comfortable working with that person, being with that person. Um, and if you can't hold, if you can't hold space, if you can't be a supportive uh, person for at the time, such as like you're in your own journey, and it's just too hard for you to be there with that person, then looking for finding support, finding other people that can can be supportive for that person instead. I think uh, Sarah also in watching uh, the the video I mentioned uh, previously, you you also talked about uh, how important contact. Uh, could be, and that uh, I thought that was really well said. The way you the, you put it in the video, and uh, you you mentioned kind of that the internal experience that that person is having is so personal and so uh, inaccessible. However, their body, uh, which is you know, it can somatically be be used to to access that person, whether or not their mind is completely with you. Um, so, so just something as simple as human contact can just uh, immediately make them feel better. Does that come out of the transpersonal psychology side of things? Like, is that part of that um, that teaching? Uh, yeah, I'd say that definitely. Like the somatic uh, therapy or somatic psychology. Um, I think that yeah, touch human contact is something that we are very starved of, starved for in our society healthy consensual human contact beyond just you know your partner it's like even friends you know hanging out with each other it's like we don't get as much touch as we should and um in the space yeah inviting people to you know would you would you like a hand would you like my hand on your shoulder you know always asking permission is really important but we find that often people will reach out will want a hand I think it's something that we've learned as well in the in the studies into psychedelic medicines. We find in the research into MDMA, research into LSD and psilocybin that if somebody's struggling, oftentimes it can be really helpful for them to receive some contact, some therapeutic uh, touch. And so, yeah, it's definitely something that comes out of, of psychotherapy, transpersonal, somatic, and psychedelic therapy. A lot of what we uh, use in the Zendo space, our, our information in our manual, the protocol that we use, is taken from psychedelic psychotherapy, is taken from shamanism, from, from years of uh, psychonauts, <laughs> people who just learned how to, how to do it, how to hold space. You know, harm reduction or psychedelic support work has been happening for as long as psychedelics have been used. And specifically in the West, you know, during the 60s, there were groups that formed to provide services for people, to provide support uh, for people. So it's been all, everything that we're utilizing in the Zendo has been built upon. There's a knowledge base, a wisdom base that's been built upon by so many people. And we really feel like it's important to honor all of the, the voices and the community of the psychedelic uh, community that have really contributed to, to helping um, yeah, create the, the manual that we use and helping support people in their experience. 
So my final question is, um, Sarah, if you could estimate for listeners, what, um, what percentage is the risk of actually turning into a glass of orange juice for <laughs> one of your LSD tripping, uh, attendees at one of these festivals? Is there, is it 1%? Uh, can you put a number on that? The risk of turning into a glass of orange juice. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've heard I've heard these folk, uh, you know, like like mythologies around LSD in particular, but psychedelics in general about, uh, you know, becoming you know becoming a glass of orange juice and like oh no, don't get tipped over, and then like right. you, you know you, you never come back that kind of thing, um, or like you know turning into an orange, which I find it interesting that it's you know related to to uh to oranges again uh, and then somebody peels you and then that's that's really bad when that happens <laughs> this is the apple lobby man <laughs> right uh, i've apple never lobby. heard these terms this is great wow. i'm gonna look at this um so so i understand it's like okay what percentage of people like don't come back <laughs> I, I guess you can make a serious question of my, <laughs> of my joke. Okay. Well, like, it is a question that we get asked definitely in this space, but yeah. It's Joe, you, ju- you just got zendoed right now, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I guess I've also come across like folk remedies. You know, people say uh, paradoxically that eating an orange might be some somehow useful. And I think that, you know, may relate to the vitamin C or just the sugar or whatever. Um, and then it's been brought to my attention that bananas, you know, maybe the potassium in a banana. I mean, I think you, you brought it up earlier though, just eating some food maybe when you're a little bit hungry and you just didn't realize that you're hungry. So people like to make a sort of, you know, uh, folk remedy story about this, but, um, it, are there any, you know, tr- tools of the trade or tricks of the trade like that, that people can, can try out? Yeah, I mean, um, we we do give oranges sometimes and orange juice. We have found that with LSD, that is definitely particularly helpful. But you know, I don't I don't know about this, but I have also heard that you know vitamin C and psilocybin has a very different effect. So be careful, <laughs> you know, knowing what somebody's on because definitely vitamin C and psilocybin I think can increase the the effects. LSD it can decrease the effects. So, uh, you know, sometimes people won't even tell you what they're on either because they don't want to or because they uh, they don't know or they're not even aware that they're on something. I think many of us have gotten to that space where it's like, wait, what? What I took something? I don't even know what what I took. So um, I think that. You know, you have to be really aware of what what people the, the space that people are in is one that they may or may they may or may not know what they actually took. Um, but we, what we have found is that having some nice things that smell good, so like some lavender and some rosemary, we usually don't uh, light sage in the space or Palo Santo or things like that because those lighting things and those smells can be incredibly strong. So, you know, we'll give people things to smell, bottles to smell, but we won't usually spray or burn things in the space because it can just be so intense for the senses. But we found that that can be really helpful and really grounding. We have art supplies in the space that we use. So we've got lots of markers and coloring books and things like that. And we found that can be really helpful as well. Uh, the space itself is really beautiful. We have pillows and beds and blankets and tea. And it's kind of like uh, we joke that it's like going to your psychedelic grandma. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like grandma's house. Like we have everything that you could want <laughs> to feel safe. Um, and so, yeah, just creating as comfortable of a space as possible, I think, is, is really the key there. 
And yeah, definitely having some food. I've heard the banana thing. I definitely believe the orange thing. And I don't exactly know the mechanism by which it works. I'm sure somebody knows. But the banana thing was recently told to me. And I'm curious to start trying that out as well. Um, but yeah. Have you ever had somebody run off into the desert after you know reaching out and offering them an orange, and they just couldn't handle the uh, the, the fear, you know, of, of uh, potentially, you know, their their biggest fear is coming to light. <laughs> yeah, we have I, had people run, but not in the presence of an orange. So. Okay, all right, I'll let it go. I'll, I'll let it go now. <laughs> I, ha- I have heard oranges uh, before the first ayahuasca ceremony I did. That was specifically something that was re- recommended to avoid, and I. I my understanding was it had something to do with your digestion and the way that you know you you digest either the the MAOI or the chacruna leaf itself. That there's a chance that if you had some some citrus, that it either might not work as well or it might interfere somehow. But I you know again I don't know the science exactly, but there's an orange at the center of all of this. <laughs> Well, this has been this has been awesome, Sarah. Thank you again um, for your time. Um, were there other things, Joe, that you wanted to to um, to hit on? Did you have a kind of a, a wrap up in mind? Well, I think we should encourage listeners to check out uh, the Zendo Project at zendoproject.org, um, where they could uh, volunteer. Uh, they can uh, donate uh, to the Zendo Project. Uh, also, you'll find links to the Zendo training video, which I think is helpful just for a general audience as well, dealing with friends you know, that might be going through these experiences. Uh, it's good to be prepared in advance. Um, look out for that webinar. Uh, Sarah, you mentioned there's a webinar coming out that um, was uh, originally set up for uh, supporters of your Indiegogo campaign. Is that right? Yeah, there'll be a webinar coming out soon on our Facebook page, probably within the next couple of weeks. And that just uh, gives a little bit of history into the Zendo project and talks about um, how we started and just kind of uh, a lot of the principles that we discussed today. So very similar conversation. um, And that has uh, Rick Doblins there as well as two of the other coordinators, Shannon and uh, Chelsea. And uh, that's moderated by Bryce Montgomery from MAPS. So that's just um, something that'll be coming out soon. And uh, yeah, to find to friend us on Facebook, we always have things coming out. Facebook, we're also on Instagram, uh, Zendo Project. Excellent. Well, again, listeners, go to zendoproject.org and definitely support the Zendo Project. And thank you, Sarah, for your generosity tonight with your time and for all the work you do, as well as the other volunteers at the Zendo Project. Really good, noble work. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for supporting us.